thee. Make haste, O God, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let them be put to shame and confusion who seek my life. Let them be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let them turn back because of their shame who say, Aha, aha, may all you who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say evermore, God is great, but I am poor and needy. Hasten to me, O God. You are my help and my deliverer. O Lord, do not delay. The word of the Lord. It's a beautiful psalm, Psalm 70. We love that God includes such gritty passages of Scripture that the great King David could even say, hurry up, God, and save me, means something for us, even beyond what the words actually say when they're put together. That in God's wisdom, he designed that we would reach the end of our rope at times and have to cry out to him. It's beautiful, but we hate it. <laughs> we hate that it, it can be sung by us in our lives. We do everything in our power to avoid coming to the end of our ropes, to keep the end of our rope a long, long, long way down the road. When we get there, when we reach the hard bottom of the well, we feel exposed, we feel hopeless, we feel powerless. And it's in those places, though, where we feel exposed and hopeless and powerless that we actually become our true selves as God's children where all of our raw emotions are laid bare for the world to see, where the reality of our desperation that God move and act to save us becomes the first words that we speak. This is exactly who we were made to be. We were engineered to be dependent and needy and reliant. We were made to drown in need. This psalm, Psalm 70, is actually the, the final five verses of Psalm 40, which is a, a much longer psalm. Um, and, and David has uh, both of them attributed to him. Psalm 40, though, is much uh, bigger and built out. There's a lot more to it. And then you get to these last five verses, and it's almost the same. Psalm 70 is even shrunken down more than Psalm 40. And again, there's something to that. That here's this big song in 40 where the same theology is included at the end. But the people needed a quick song of need to sing, even separate from everything else that's in 40. And so it's covered. David covers his own tune. He rephrases it ever so slightly and it gets included again because sometimes when we get to that place in life, we have to skip to the end and just shout out with David, 
Oh, God, help me right now. I have to have you work in my life or it's over. My wife is from Northern California, but not the pretty part, the part that looks exactly like Owasso. Not that Owasso is not pretty, but if you're like me, you think of California, you, you think of the Pacific. It's beautiful. It stretches for thousands and miles. Right? You, you can't see the end of it. It's breathtaking. Or the mountains, maybe the Sierra Nevada, it's like, that's beautiful. She lives on a farm. And eight acres of kiwi is what you get, which I am sure there are folks that love kiwi in here. But when you visit the kiwi farm and it's almost close to harvest season, it smells like flatulence. Kiwis put off a gas that's miserable. There's no escaping it. So when I, have to, when I get to go visit my in-laws... I make a strong request that we at least take a brief respite from the farts of kiwis and we go either to the mountains or to the ocean. Just for a couple days, let me, let me see pretty California. So we went to a place called Fort Bragg. Maybe you've heard of Fort Bragg, North Carolina. This is Fort Bragg, California. And Fort Bragg has a place called Glass Beach. They used to throw all their wine bottles and garbage into the ocean here. They've stopped doing it now. But California used to litter like crazy, and they would throw all the glass in there. Well, over the decades, the bottles broke, and the waves and tides pushed these smooth red and green and blue and brown bottles up. So they're all broken. The pebbles, the sand looks like a rainbow. It's breathtaking. It's beautiful. So we went out, and we were hiking around. Me and my three boys hung out. They were miserable getting hypothermia playing in the Pacific. Uh, So we went on a hike down the beach. And if if you've been to Galveston, I grew up in Houston. Galveston is terrible. It's the Gulf of Nesquik. It looks like chocolate milk. You come out with a sheen on you. It's not great. The Pacific is beautiful, though, and we went hiking these huge sort of rocky outcroppings in the ocean, and me and my three boys came up to one, and I said, hey, guys, can you guys just hang out here? I would like to climb up to the top of this and just sit and listen to the waves, watch the ocean for just 10 minutes. I'll be right back down. There's a whole beach of caves and beautiful rocks. You can amuse yourself, can't you? Oh, yeah, Dad, we'll be fine. So I went hiking up this, it's 30, 40 foot tall cliff, right? And it's in the ocean kind of. And I get, as I'm cresting the top, climbing this thing, I see a guy running up the beach yelling at me. He's cussing at me. And he's walking his dog, but he's, he's now he's running and he's yelling, what are you doing? Get out of there. You're going to kill yourself. And I was thinking to myself, you're not my real dad. Like, I'm a grown man. I can climb this rock if I want to climb this rock. I'm being careful. And he's pointing at the base of this rock in the water, and it took me uh, longer than it should have to realize there were kids at the front of this rock where the waves are pushing up against the rock. And it's my kids that had wandered out in front, they were going to walk around this rock, and they didn't realize the Pacific drops off. It's 
not like the gulf you can walk out a quarter mile in. You go out and it drops off. And they're in front of this rock and getting beaten up against it. And I'm now, I'm trying to climb down as fast and safe as I can. And I reached the bottom and I saw my middle son come out and he's bloody and vomiting up seawater. And the stranger has him and is dragging him forward. And I see my oldest son, who's the strongest of the bunch, and I see that he's okay, but I don't see my youngest. And I have this, everything falls out from me as I reach to grab him and throw him onto the sand. And as I'm pulling him up, I see that he has a vice-like grip on his little brother's shirt. And they're both bedraggled and seaweed and blood everywhere and throwing up and it was the most beautiful vomit I've ever had on me and I get him onto the shore said, why didn't you guys call why I was why didn't you call out we did dad you couldn't you must not have heard us I, my world almost came undone through my child's children's ignorance but they were sure that their dad would save them if they called out loud enough. And I couldn't hear them. And if there's nothing else that reaches you from Psalm 70 this morning, I hope you can realize that your God who commands you to cry out to him hears you. And he comes in strength to save you even, especially when you're drowning in need. My kids didn't have David's word. We hadn't had them memorize Psalm 70 yet. But I promise you they were singing it in their own childish way. Hurry up, Dad, and save me. Dad, if you don't come down and pull us out of this water, we are goners for sure. Hurry up, Dad, and save me. Are you so far off that you can't hear? Is your arm so short that you won't reach out and save? This is what my kids were gurgling under the Pacific. Does it feel strange to you to pray this way or to sing this way to our God? Does it seem unpresbyterian to cry out so emotionally in the middle of life's storms and to demand that God move to help. It does to me. It feels very foreign to pray like David as a Presbyterian minister. It feels very overly exaggerated. And so when I pray, even when I pray for real needs, I tend to give God an out. Oh Lord, great in majesty, mighty in wonders, you can do all things. And if it's in your will to act and heal my son, God, would you, would you please do that? Yes, I know he's a sinner. Maybe I'm projecting my own sin onto you, but it could be there are other Reformed people who pray this way. No matter how true it is that he is actually in charge of everything, when we're in the middle of life coming unglued, Psalm 70 
is God's promise to us that he wants us crying out. Is there something you need to cry out for this morning? Is there rescue needed in your life that only God can provide? In job, in marriage, in parenting, in family situations, people that are so far gone that if God doesn't act, it's hopeless. Cry out to the Lord this morning. Do you live in a country, in a world that seems to be ripping apart at the seams? Let us cry out. Are there people in your life, maybe you facing pain and terror, who are hopeless and needy? Then the church should be known as the people crying out for God to come and deliver. King David was a man in constant need. And that in and of itself is kind of shocking. You would think, okay, you're the king, the chosen king by God for his people. Surely you'll be spared from need. But David, even when he was a young shepherd, had to face down lions and wolves. He needed God for strength and courage. When he was a younger um, man and friends with uh, the king's son, Jonathan, King Saul hated him and chucked spears at him and plotted against him. David needed God for safety and rescue. When David did become king, he had a whole host of armies that he was constantly engaged with. He needed God for wisdom and security. His own son rebelled against him. Absalom tried to take dad's life. David was constantly in need. Why? That's the burning question that we face. Why? How can God choose to let his grace rest upon someone and then let that same child whom he has declared his love face so much struggle and anxiety and fear? Why is it that we need? Why does he let us suffer pain and loss? There's an entire theological and philosophical discussion on the problem of evil. The fancy word is theodicy. How can there be a good, morally pure being that we know as God and also evil? How can both exist? Either there's no evil, which no one would say, or there's no God, which more and more people seem to say because of the need that evil presents. Theodicy is a fascinating study that has immediate application to our experience of the world. There are millions of people who want to know how to reconcile the evil we see all over the world with what Christians say is a good and personal God. It's a fair question. We can't answer all of the objections this morning, but we can at least say through David's song in Psalm 70 that the main reason is that God has fashioned us to need. That somehow in his infinite wisdom, need itself is a mercy from God. So if we think back to the opening chapters of the first book of the Bible, Genesis, it's this perfect garden, and God has made two beautiful humans in his image. 
And what does God do with them? Even before sin enters the picture, what does God do with them? He walks with them. He talks with them. He visits with them. He tells them, here's what I want you to do. I want you to expand the borders of this garden until it covers the earth. I want you to use and, 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 and partner with creation as it partners with you and make it as beautiful everywhere as it is right here. And all I want you to do is not eat from this one tree. So even before there was sin, there was need. Does this make sense? Even before our hearts and lives were rent asunder, we needed God to, to guide us, to guard us, to govern us. We needed to be with him enough to understand his expectations for us in his world. Need is not a result of sin. We're made to be dependent. This is for our good that God meet our needs. It's for his glory that he be seen as the great need meter. Without the presence of need in our lives, we become self-sufficient and arrogant because we can make our own way without need. Without need, we can find ourselves looking down our noses at others and expecting that they get their lives in order like my life is in order. Without need, we can pray the prayer of the Pharisee from Luke 18. God, thank you that I am not like other men, those worthless, needy sinners. Need protects us from cold and stubborn hearts. And we know from David's own quill in Psalm 51 that God loves a needful heart, a broken and contrite heart. Needy hearts beg for mercy. Needy hearts know that we are sinners and that his action and his forgiveness is our only hope. When our hearts are needy, then our rescue can't be confused with self-sufficiency. And then our prayer sounds not like the Pharisee in Luke 18, but like this tax collector who beats his breast and cries out, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. This can be our prayer with needful hearts. Evil is real and present and deadly, and we don't want to diminish or downplay the actual cost of evil in personal situations. But needy hearts let us be honest about ourselves. That the truth we face again and again in Holy Scripture is that the same real, present, and deadly evil that dwells in the world dwells where first? In me, in you, in our ruined hearts. It's my selfishness, my greed, and my pride. Evil is not just external and unmerited suffering. Evil is what's inside me. My unbelief is evil. My lust is evil. Cold hearts are evil. There's a famous uh, uh, experience uh, that the, a London newspaper asked the 
the Londoners to write in and the, answer the question, what is wrong with the world? And this was in the 1800s. And one Catholic writer who's one of my favorites, G.K. Chesterton, wrote in, Dear Sirs, comma, I am, period, sincerely, Gilbert Keith Chesterton. What's wrong with the world? Me. I, I am what's wrong with the world. You are what's wrong with the world. When we face down the need of our hearts that honestly, then we can cry out in pure hope that the Lord move. David's life was one of need, for sure. But as people of God, you and I are people of need as well. And the Lord keeps us in a place of need. Because when the church doesn't need, when the church leads from a position of power, we put Christ on the sideline. Hey, God, we will take it from here. We'll pull out you when we need a slogan, when we need to win a campaign. We'll pull you back in and show you to the crowd. But we can lead ourselves from here. When the church leads without need, the church leads without God. And so God gives us need. And what David sings about here in Psalm 70 should be true for all of life as we follow Christ, that we are, in fact, born at the end of our rope. We are born in sin. We are born disconnected. And we are, in fact, desperately needy. And it's only in those places of pressing need where we honestly face our condition, when we remove our pretentious masks and become real about our need. But notice this passage isn't just general in its need. It's specific. It's right now. It's immediate and pressing. Look back at the nine verses. Or it's five verses, nine sentences. All nine sentences end with an exclamation point. This is something happening right now and immediately as David gives these words. It's almost a verbatim quotation, like I said earlier from Psalm 40, but where 40 has all this other rich theology and poetic retelling of God's relationship with David, Psalm 70 jumps to the end and we hear David scream, Help! And for all of us who really like things done decently in order, a hymn like Psalm 70 comes crashing into our neatly pressed lives. And it feels really self-centered of David to call out like that to God and demand that he come right now, this minute, to rescue him. To pray this way can sound like we're challenging God's sovereign control over all or like we're reminding him of something he forgot. Hey, God, haven't you noticed that we're really in trouble right now? Don't you think it would be a good idea for you to get up and act? That's a wrong way to read this because in this clear expression of need, there's something beautiful and refreshing that God expects his children to cry out of our immediate need for rescue. God wants you crying out to him. 
however you're facing that experience, when, you're, when you don't have all the I's dotted and the T's crossed and all you know to do is cry out for help, that's what God wants of you. Imagine a child, one of your own, um, waking up in the middle of the night with a nightmare and screaming, screaming at you for help to come and rescue and comfort him, yelling. Do you ignore his cry because he didn't call you by the right name or because he woke you from your rest? Maybe you do and you need parenting classes. When your child cries out at night in terror, you run to them, even if they don't do it rightly. You go and you sit with them and you understand their horror. You empathize with their pain and you reassure him that because you love him, you would never live in a house that has monsters under the bed. No, there's nothing here. I'm here. That's what David is singing in Psalm 70. And it's just like what Jesus taught in Matthew 7 and Luke 11. Which one of you, when your son asks for bread, would give him a stone? How cruel, how heartless and cold and callous. When your son asks for a fish and you toss him a cobra, that's not the way God hears us. We cry out in terror, and the Lord runs into the room. The invitation in Psalm 70 is for us to cry like scared and needy children, believing that God will not only hear us, but that he actually cares and really does love us. And we're not just needy generally. We're needy right now, immediately, specifically. And how generous is God's grace that we're invited to sing a song like Psalm 70. He wants us, his children, his needy and scared children to call on his speedy grace for rescue. From our places of shame and out of our hopelessness, God wants us to cry out believing that he is our good father. My confession of sin that was private was about my own cynicism this week. It was very convicting to prepare this sermon this week because I'm tired. I'm tired of being an earthling. I want us to discover this other planet somewhere where we can uproot and move. I'm disgusted at the world that I live in. I'm tired of political fights about marriage. I'm tired of the incessant and brutal racism that refuses to die. I'm horrified at the portioning off for sale of aborted humans for experimentation. And I think the constant success and truly evil actions of radical Islam is hopeless in the Middle East. Every news report tells me so. So I just want to go to an island. I want to win the lottery and go drink margaritas in the sand somewhere where you're not. I look around at all this evil and it's pressing in and it seems like it's winning the day and taking over everything and I want to check out. 
Now, here's what I want. I want a nation that reflects my own preferences. I want effective politicians. I want everything that I hate outlawed, and I want every bad guy locked in a cell. I want good armies to defeat and kill bad armies. But here's what I haven't done in ages. I haven't shed a single tear over this litany of hopelessness that I live in. As much as I hate what's going on, I'm not crying out. Make haste, O Lord, and put an end to this ruin that we keep pulling in on ourselves. My eyes are dry. As much as my heart is broken, I feel like reading this psalm, it's broken out of selfishness. Because if I really felt the sin of my own heart and life and the sin of the cultures that I dwell in, I think I would just weep. I think I would feel utterly without cause except for God, and I would sing Psalm 70 like I meant it, like it was all that I had. I believe that Christians can and should serve faithfully in elected office, in judicial roles, even as soldiers. I think there's all sorts of ways for us to lead and influence as the church, the world's societies. But my own heart has not been with David's and crying out for the Lord's deliverance. My own heart has not been with Christ who sat and wept outside of Jerusalem. How I long to gather you like hens to her mother. I wonder if anything would be different if instead of our digital Facebook rage, the world saw us as weepers, as prayers, and as desperate singers for God's rescue. I think we should write letters to congressmen and participate in civic arenas, but we should be doing it. I should be doing it with wet eyes and needful heart. David gets much more honest with his prayers than I do. He asks that those who are seeking his demise be covered in shame and dishonor. Right? This is the fun part to pray. Right? We get to pray against our enemies. Just be careful. Because those are the types of prayers that we enjoy in our selfish, unneedful hearts. That anybody who frustrates me or disappoints me gets moved out of this nice column, right, like Santa Claus, into the naughty column. God, give them coal. I have a really great friend back in Dallas who, in his mind, he maintains a metaphorical bus that's perched on the edge of a cliff. And his bus is filled with dirty politicians and hated sports figures. And we worked together when I was in seminary, and we would stock our buses with people and the question was always, hey, is this guy on the bus? Oh, yeah, he's in the front seat. Tommy Lasorda is in his front row going over the cliff. It was a gag for us. And there are enough examples of people headed to ruin in Scripture that I don't want to tell you not to pray this way. I just want to caution you. Because remember the answer to the question of who is your worst enemy most often. Right? There's a mirror in each of the restrooms if you need to find the answer out. So be careful about praying against who brings ruin into your life because it's you. 
The sin that we rail against in the world can live happily at home in our very hearts. But the amazing news that the gospel of Jesus Christ brings is that these curses of shame and disaster that David prays for God to pour out on his enemies, God ultimately pours out on his own son. And this is grace. This is the work of God for rescue. That all these prayers of punishment that David prays for his accusers come to rest on Jesus, who became the very curse of sin. And you read the account in Mark 15 of Jesus hanging on the cross. And Mark says this, and those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests and the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. And here's something that David strained to see. God covering, God saving the shame of man by becoming shame himself. The wonder of the gospel, as Paul retells it in Colossians 2, is that all the dishonor that belonged to us, all the shame of standing filthy and naked before God, all the confusion and ruin that we deserve, you and I, every bit of our disgrace was nailed to the cross when the perfect son was sacrificed. And that through his rising again to new life, Jesus took evil's greatest weapon, death, and he pointed it back at its head. He put all that evil to open shame as he pulled us to himself in resurrection. The truth that David prays here is that the gospel destroys God's enemies by making them his friends and his children. And he does that by becoming shame itself. The problem of evil is that I am myself evil. But the power of the gospel is that God himself bore the curse and punishment of my evil, that in his life I might live. And brothers and sisters, if we can set our masks of providing for ourselves aside and be honest in our need and cry out trusting that we have as his children God's favor, that we can see our shame set on Christ and his glory set on us, then verse 4 takes on fresh meaning for us. We can seek and be glad in the Lord's salvation. We can sing forever in the light of this beautiful rescue and say over and over again for all eternity, our God is great, our God is great. And I love the way David cycles back at the final verse, as verse 5 mirrors verse one in many ways. He could have ended it on the high note of God's salvation in verse four, and that would have been good. But I love the realism that even after David has sung this strong profession of God's sure salvation, that that doesn't mean he's escaped his need yet. That this side of all things new, church, we should never forget that we are the poor, we are the needy. That salvation is realer and truer than all the problems that press in to crush us. 
And for us, it's new every morning. In other words, we can never grow past the place of calling out to God, our Father, in desperation. We keep calling out, and God keeps hearing and saving. This is the good news. That's the heart of God that Jesus came to display and pour into us. We know this from his parable of the prodigal son. The prodigal son was seen returning even when he was a long way off. And what does the father do? He runs out to rescue him in his shame. And the older brother at the barbecue to celebrate the return of the son goes out frustrated. You don't love me. He's always been your favorite. You throw barbecues for him. I don't get any. And what does the father do? He goes out to his self-righteous son and pleads with him to come back in. Your God is a going God who comes to us in our need. We are beggars. In our rebellious sin and even in our repentance of sin, we are beggars. May God give us grace to need even now. May God save us even now. Oh Lord, do not delay in delivering us into the mercy of Christ right now that we might believe and say again, our God is great. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we are drowning in our need. If we had eyes to see and ears to hear what is true of us apart from you, then we would be fruitless and lifeless and dry and fit for the burn pile. So would you show us our need, show us that our every heartbeat, that our every firing synapse comes to us by your blood-bought hand in the work of our Savior. Give us need and give us hearts that reflect, who rejoice, hearts that our very first reaction is to cry out to you. We cry out to you now and beg of you mercy and grace that you come and meet us in our need as your children. Save us, rescue, and deliver us again that you might be seen as great and we might be seen as your child. In Christ we pray and believe this to be true. Amen.